ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Catching a plane these days is, for most people, a pretty boring experience. You walk aboard, you get an in-flight snack, maybe watch some TV, a snooze, and then you're there. Here's another way to describe that journey. You and a hundred or so people get into a metal tube strapped to a bunch of rockets which ignite and fling you into the sky at tremendous speed and then you fall to earth in the centre of a big city. This is an amazing thing that seems so dangerous. It's become so safe, you hardly think twice about it. Now, I think it's like this when it comes to having a general anaesthetic as well. If you think about it, that's an extraordinary thing. There's the countdown, you become unconscious, and yourself, your mind, your consciousness, is seemingly just obliterated. It's as though you've just stepped outside for a while so you can endure something that would otherwise be agonisingly painful, and then you just sort of pop back. But where have you been all that time? Anesthesia, it hardly needs to be said, is one of the greatest blessings of modern medicine and modern life. And the profession is just getting better and better at it. But it's still a very weird process. Kate Cole-Adams discovered so much of the business of anaesthesia is mysterious, even to the anaesthetist. She wanted to know, do patients retain any memories of the operating table? Can they hear what's going on in the theatre? How does the unconscious mind deal with the body being opened up and moved about? Kate Cole-Adams' book is completely fascinating, and it's called Anesthesia, The Gift of Oblivion and the Mystery of Unconsciousness. Hi, Kate. Hi, Richard. I've been waiting for someone to write a book about this because it's so, so interesting. Isn't it weird how little people talk about this very strange experience? It is really weird. And and to be honest, I, I've, I've spent a long time researching and I kept on thinking, someone else is going to be talking about this. Someone else is going to be writing this book. or And... No one did, and I, I I have this theory that an anesthesia is kind of like a bit of a blank spot in our in our psyche, uh, and that you know we, we don't think about it very much. You know, just just when I met you just now, I, I mean, I think before you could even get two words out, I just had to blurt out my own experience of general anesthesia, which was really good. My experience of yes. general anesthesia for surgery was excellent, and uh, my my dad's experience, other people's experience. Uh, is everyone like that with you now? Do people just walk up to you and blurt out their experiences having <laughs> yes. a general anaesthetic? They do. I'm, uh, well, n- n- not everyone, but I, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people uh, do come up to me. People come up to me at work. People come up to me, you know, if I do um, readings. Uh, I have this list. I mean, yes, there's stories. There are so many stories. And I, I kind of feel like it's this... It's this amazing process that, as you say, it, it is like getting on a plane. We don't really think about it. And yet... Unlike getting on a plane, I mean, people talk about being scared of flying. The thing about anaesthesia is people don't talk about it. And uh, I think what's so sort of strange about, and, you know, being someone like myself who starts saying, well, what, what is this about? This is such a strange thing. I'm going to ask questions. And suddenly I've got, yeah, suddenly there are people coming up to me all the time. So you were going to have an operation, a pretty serious operation for your back in 2010. And yes. this is what got you asking these questions. You'd had general anaesthetics before. Why were you more troubled about the prospect of a general anaesthetic this time round? I think partly because by the time my my own surgery came up in 2010, I'd actually been researching anaesthesia for 
six years already. So, uh, part, you know, I think the reason I was so nervous was partly because I, I knew a whole lot more uh, than I had before. And um, Hang on, does this mean you've been researching this for about 13 years now, is it, or yes, thereabouts? Yes, that's, for, that's officially... I, I have been researching this for 13 years and the first interviews I, I, I did for this were, the first one is in 1999. So this has been a ridiculously long project. So what was troubling you the most about the prospect of having an anaesthetic this time round? I were, well, it was very hard for me to put into words. I, I, was, I was really terrified and I I kind of just had this idea that that somehow I would disappear and that I would disappear and that I wouldn't be able to find my way back, you know. And I I, I kind of had this idea that I, I'd be I'd walk into this this dark room and then I'd be locked in this dark room, and then I wouldn't be able to get out until someone else let me out, and that then when I came out I might not actually be the same person who'd been in the room anyway, and yeah, I was really scared. I did think after I'd had mine, where did I go? Where did I go in yeah. in that time? Was any of me still there? Was was a tiny bit of me still there? Where did where did I go in in that time? Maybe that's the question we all want to know the answer to when we have a general. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's that's really the question that that kind of um, bugged me over a long period of time, and and you know, and partly because my. My, you know, I, I had always assumed that really an anaesthetic was just like a nothing. It was like a nothing space. You got an injection or you got some gas and you disappeared. And then once I started researching, I realised that it was far more nuanced and complicated than that. And that just because you don't remember anything doesn't mean that there wasn't anything to remember, for instance. Um, I think that was what really did my head in. Now, we're going to talk about... Uh, the things that can go wrong have gone wrong for people who become accidentally aware, all sorts of things that go on during anaesthetic. But it's probably good to, at the outset to say that for the vast majority of people, their experience of general anaesthetic is like mine. It's really good, isn't it? Yes, I think for the vast majority of people, it's, it's at least benign. Um, some people uh, really love it. And some people, it's okay, it's a bit weird, mm, not sure, but basically okay. And then there are, there's a very small proportion of people who have, have kind of really awful experiences uh, and th- those are the ones that tend to get the publicity. But by and large, you know, and I, I think about it, it, it's like getting on a plane, you know. You know statistically that you are almost certain to get off that plane at the end and it's going to be great. Uh, but you also know in the back of your mind that every now and then someone doesn't get off that plane. And, and I think, for me, thinking about anaesthesia is a bit like that. I mean, it's it's an enormous thing that happens. One of the things that fascinates me about this is it's like I, I sort of feel with, anaesthe- with anaesthesia, we've kind of done a deal as, as, a, as a society and, and, and as individuals where we've gone, we're going to trade, we do this trade, and the trade is that I, as a patient, hand over my consciousness, the, my consciousness, myself, the thing that makes me know that I am me, I hand that over to, let's say, you're, you're my doctor, Richard. Mm-hmm. I hand that over to you and in return you open up my body and do things inside it that would otherwise be, you know, possibly fatally painful and then you close me up again and I know nothing about it. So pretty good deal but it's still a deal. And 
we don't talk about it. Yeah, it's probably an, un- an unwillingness to look a gift horse in the mouth. Perhaps that's it. That's it too. It is yeah, such a blessing. It is such a blessing, and yet I, you know, I actually think that they've and and from my research and and talking to people that there are some costs for us in not asking some questions. The history of anaesthesia. It's a really recent thing. I mean, just, just tell me a little bit about what you understand what was going on before we had the, the uh, general anaesthetic or the anaesthetics we have today. I mean, I, you know, we've, a lot of us have seen period dramas or something where mm. some poor chap in the Crimean War has got to have his arm or leg lopped off and he's, he's given a half a bottle of whiskey and, and something to bat, bite down on. That's pretty much it, wasn't it? Well, look, people have been trying all sorts of different things, but prior to 1840, 1846, I think the first, um, you know, sort of publicly, uh, there was the first successful public demonstration of what's now known as general anaesthesia. Um, you know, in the in the lead up to that, probably the most effective uh, technique was, was hypnosis, uh, which, but of course, the minute anaesthesia came along, everything else just went by the by because suddenly there was this magical thing that could take away pain. How powerful was the dread of surgery before there well, was a general anaesthetic? The, the, the dread of surgery for very, very good reasons was so intense that a lot of people chose to die rather than have surgery and, and you sort of go back into the, into the history and there are terrible, terrible stories of people being tied down on, on operating tables. I mean, they were generally tied down. There are terrible stories about people actually climbing off halfway through the operation, kind of running down the corridors, being chased by the doctors to be brought back for the, the wow. surgery to continue. I mean, really, it was horrendous, but think about it. That's what you do, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. I'm... Still, we've had modern medicine, we've had modern anaesthesia for, for many, many decades now. And yet, the thing I got from your book is that after all these years, millions of patients successfully anaesthetised, how well does medical science understand how it works? Well, up to a point. Um, certainly, certainly, you know, uh, we, we understand a lot more than, than we did 170 years ago. Uh, yeah. But there, there are still things, you know, there, there are things that happen in the brain, in the neurons, and there are things that happens in the kind of electrical activity in the brain. And, uh, you know, doctors kind of know about that, but they don't really know what it is that causes the unconsciousness. Um, all, and they don't really know why different drugs do it in different ways. Uh, although I think they're getting closer to figuring out some pretty clear markers of that. But then there's kind of all sorts of bigger problems because in a sense you're asking, well, you know, what causes unconsciousness? So to ask that you've kind of got to say, well... What so is unconsciousness? What is unconsciousness? <laughs> right, That's yeah. right. And then it's like, well... No one, no one agrees on what unconsciousness is. And so then, you know, so then this is why my head exploded while I was trying to do this research. You know, <laughs> what I thought was going to be, you know, a couple of years' worth of interesting research became this huge, um, huge process because then, of course, I had to go, well, what's consciousness? And, of course, that's, you know, still probably the single biggest question in certainly in the human sciences uh, and uh, no one can agree. So suddenly you've wandered out of the realm of medical science into philosophy all of a sudden, yes, haven't you, really? Yeah. And there's the mystery of the mind as well. I mean, yes. the mind's a bit like art, isn't it? We, we can't define it really, but we know it when we see it, don't we? Yes, I think yes. I, I just recently interviewed Henry Marsh, the British uh, neurosurgeon who yes. has conducted many 
uh, brain surgery operations. He said for all, after all this time of operating in the brain, he never even came close to understanding what the mind is that, and how to define it and where it lies in. So in a way, is this, is this whole of knowledge, this, this kind of is, – is this about because we don't really know what the mind is yet or we can't talk about it in, in biomedical terms? Is that what that is, that whole of knowledge? Yes, I mean, I think partly. I mean, partly there's a kind of definitional problem, and, and the whole, you know, the whole question about what the mind is 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 just impossible. But even if you just leave out the fact that we don't know what the mind is, we don't really know what consciousness is, and we don't know what unconsciousness is, uh, we still don't know what happens inside the brain. Even um, well, we know things that happen, but we still don't know what the things are that happen inside the brain that make us, uh, that anaesthetise us so that we're not going to try and climb off the table while we're being operated on. So tell me, Kate, what, what are the three main elements in an anaesthetic cocktail? Because it's a cocktail of drugs these days. Yeah, it? it is these days. Back, back, back in the day, it, it was a single drug like ether. Um, but these days, there, there's what they call a cocktail. And the there's the, the, the sort of the main part or the part that takes away your consciousness or sort of messes with your, your brain or mind is called the hypnotic, which is quite appropriate. Right. And that's like the ether or something, is it? Or, yeah. or something like that. It's the, right? it's, it's the thing that takes away your consciousness right. so, that you, so that you lose awareness of what's happening. Right. Uh, then there, there's um, usually also a, a strong analgesic, a strong painkiller that actually, you know, helps your body uh, uh, not respond to the pain or not experience the pain. And and the third aspect, which isn't in uh, all surgery, but in sort of I think you know forty to fifty percent of of surgeries, certainly uh, from my understanding in the West, uh, is what what's sort of called slightly euphemistically a muscle relaxant. But really, th- these are drugs that com- they do relax the muscles. They relax the muscles to the extent that you're completely paralysed. Um, you're paralysed to the extent that you're. The, the muscles between your ribs no longer work, so you need you need help to breathe. Uh, but also to the extent that clearly, if you are on the operating table and you, you do have some awareness, uh, you're certainly not going to be able to uh, communicate it. Right, but the, the muscle blockers are there to stop you sort of moving, moving around and squirming yeah. while you're being. Yeah, while they've, you, they've got. I mean, they've, they've helped in all sorts of ways. I mean, they, I mean, these days, one of the things they they help with is is when uh, uh, anaesthetists put a breathing tube down your throat. But also, they were to stop people wriggling on the table because you lose consciousness well before your body stops protesting. And so, and also, there, there are there's a whole lot of surgery, like abdominal surgery, that couldn't have been done at all. That those those deep muscles need deep relaxation to be able to get in and close them up again. So, uh, so, so the the sort of um, relaxant paralytic drugs are really important, and they've also allowed doctors to use a lot less anaesthetic. Right. So, oh, okay. So in the past, they would have had to given you a lot more of the hypnotic drug to really bomb you out so you wouldn't wriggle. So now the muscle blockers do that. So you need less of the, 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 the rest of the anaesthetic drugs in order to, to keep you still. Y- yes. Initially, you would have needed a lot more of the drug to bomb you out. That's right. So that you wouldn't be moving around. Tell me about the experiments that were conducted by a man named Bernard Levinson in the 1960s in South Africa that you called the unrepeatable experiments, please. I, I love I love this experiment. 
um, and this I, I came across early in my in my research. And and um, uh, uh, Bernard Levinson, he was a South African uh, psychiatrist who became very interested in the sixties in the whole sort of question of. Uh, well, he was interested in consciousness and unconsciousness, but he was really fascinated in what happens when we go under an anaesthetic. And he was wondering, you know, is there something else going on? Just because people look unconscious or look completely inert, might something else be happening? So he he set up and he decided he'd do an experiment. And so he, he kind of, you know, set up an experiment with a um, with a, a dentist, a, a dental surgeon, and and the anaesthetist. And and it was all very casual. And you know, they didn't even have a consent form really but basically the experiment was that uh 10 patients were all uh went under anesthesia for um you know for their dental surgery and then halfway through the operation the anesthetist basically stopped the operation and read from this prepared script and the script said something like i'm not sure if it was stop the operation but it was it was uh something's not quite right i don't like the patient's color the patient's much too blue uh, let's, uh, you know, give them some more air. Right, so it's an alarming it conversation. It was an alarming conversation. But not it true, was f- not true. No, no, no it was a fake, right, it was right. a completely fake right. crisis. Right. And so, and then they do a little sort of bit of pumping sounds. So, uh, you know, and, and then after another, you know, a couple of moments, he says in a reassuring tone, oh, no, look, it's all fine. Um, you know, the patient's okay. Uh, let's continue. And on they go. Right. Now, now the patient it bombed out on anaesthetic should yes. not have been able, in theory, not have been able to hear any of this, not yes. been aware of any of these this kind of fake crisis that's being played out yeah. uh, well, via think. a script. You'd yeah. think anyway. Yeah. So, but what yeah. what did what, what did the uh, what, what did this experiment show? Well, what this experiment showed was was a month later when um, Levinson took each patient individually back to his um, rooms and questioned them. And first of all, he said, you know how was the operation? Did you remember anything? And they said, no, 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 no. And then he hypnotised them. And under hypnosis, four of the ten remembered uh, at least parts of that conversation verbatim and repeated it. Another four kind of remembered snatches but got quite distressed and two were like completely fine, nothing, nada. Right. If they'd heard this, they could repeat snatches of this conversation verbatim. This sounds quite unscientific in a lot of ways. There's not a control well, group. It's not a very large yes, group of people. Yes. There, there, there are problems with that as an experiment, yes. aren't there? Yeah, there's all sorts of problems with it. I mean, the thing about this is, yeah, that's right. It, it didn't adhere to the scientific method. Uh, there were all sorts of reasons why this experiment was imperfect. But the problem was that because the results were so startling, uh it's now completely, you know, it is now ethically impossible to repeat that kind of experiment in a scientifically controlled environment uh, because you might be doing harm to the patients. Even though conversations like that happen every day in in actual operating theatres. So do we know that that patients can hear what's going on, even if they don't remember it, what's going on under a general anaesthetic? We know that we know that the um, we know that patients can keep hearing for quite some time under, particularly under some anaesthetics, uh, and we also know that they can retain some of that information. So the memories they've got aren't based around sight, uh, as well as it's just based on hearing, pretty much. Then is it? Well, mainly because you, because when you're anaesthetised, you yeah yeah you can't see, but also because the the auditory uh, the auditory part of the brain stays awake 
basically longer than the other senses. So, yes, there's something, there's processing going on. Uh, quite what that means uh, is is debatable. But um, there were certainly experiments in the, you know, in the sort of late 90s, and I think there have been some previously, where they actually put in, in a far more um, measured uh, and scientific way, they put patients under, under anaesthetic and then they, because they could no longer say exciting things like, you know, stop the operation, uh, they would say really boring things like boy, girl, bitter, sweet, ocean, water. And, and, would, they, it, and would the patient remember that afterwards? Well, they wouldn't know that they'd remembered it. So if they, they'd ask them later and they'd say, no, they remembered nothing. But then they would do these things. They could do, like, there's all these tests you can do which are like sneaky tests. And so they're not tests for conscious memory, but they're tests for unconscious memory. And unconscious memory, they kind of can measure because it's ways in which your behaviour has changed, even though you don't know it. And so they might like, you know, with, with that, that sort of word pair thing, when you wake up, they'd just read through... Um, you know, they'd say the word ocean and then they'd wait to see and then they'd ask you to free associate with the first word that came to mind. And what they found was, sure enough, if you'd been, if you'd been read ocean word water while you were under anaesthetic, you were more likely to say water as, your, as the first thing that you said after ocean. Is there something so, about the act of actually being cut under surgery that, that activates a part of the brain that hears better or responds better to or remembers things better uh, under surgery? There's, there's certainly evidence that, that um, and again, so much of this is controversial, but there, but there, there are certainly um, experiments that have shown that during surgery when you're actually being cut, uh, and I don't know whether it's because it makes you remember more, but you, it actually pushes you towards consciousness because your entire body, I mean, the thing under surgery, I, I mean, under anaesthetic, it's like your body is, you know, your body still flinches. There's a whole lot of stuff still going on. And there's one theory that that basically pushes the rest of you closer to consciousness. Oh. And when you're closer to consciousness, uh, you're, 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 you know, you're more likely to have those kind of unconscious or sort of subconscious um, memories or learning or awareness or whatever you want to call it, and and that can be problematic. Now, you spoke to a whole lot of anaesthetists all over the world. You spoke to a whole bunch of different I know. I went around the world and you, spoke to anaesthetists. Yeah, and, right. and this is, you know, this is me who, who did no science, who basically, you know, failed maths in Form 4. Uh, but I, I was so fascinated and, I, yeah, I was, so, so my, my, my sort of journalist to me went around the world and sort of said, what do you, what do, you do? What and, is this? And, and they were, by and large, they were pretty open with you and, and, and happy to talk about these things. Did many of them have conversations, have stories to tell about patients who'd remembered what was said in the operating theatre after surgery? Some did. Uh, uh, I, I talked to a number of medical psychologists, and you know, there, there was a there was a guy called Hank Bennett who I, um, and he he was interesting because he was he was the sort of guy who, when someone doesn't come good after after surgery or, or, you know, when people are sort of quite distressed. He's, he's a medical psychologist. Uh, he would sometimes get patients sent to him and, you know, and he had a couple of, he had this one one story for about about a woman, this was, this was sort of in the 80s or 90s, but a woman who uh, after her surgery had been, uh, she'd rung him and told him about this story, she'd been very, very distressed. She'd come out of her surgery convinced that she was going to die and she'd gone back to the surgeon and the surgeon had said, you're fine. And she said, no, nah, I'm going to die. And he said, mm, well, look, I think you should go and see a psychiatrist. So she went and saw a psychiatrist who basically said, I, I don't know what's going on. She went back to the surgeon 
and, you know, and repeated the conversation and he said, you're fine, it was all fine. And, and she suddenly burst out and, she sa- and found herself shouting out, but you didn't get rid of the black stuff. Didn't get rid of the black you stuff. Didn't get rid of the black stuff. I should have said that it was a it was a surgery. It was a um, remove uh, a tumor. Remove right. a tumor. And there was this pause, and the surgeon went, "Oh my god!" Turns out that as they were sewing, sort of, you know, towards the end of, of the operation, he had started chatting to the people, to the other people in the operating theatre about the difficulties, how difficult it was to remove uh, the stains on the grout in his bathroom. The black stuff. The black stuff was mould in his shower cubicle? The black stuff was mould in his shower cubicle. and She'd the, overheard this under She had light. overheard this un, under anaesthetic. And the thing, because <laughs> I know, I know, it's like mind-blowing really, but the thing that really fascinated me about this was, of course... And I shouldn't laugh because it's true, traumatic, it's horrible for well, him. But the explanation so banal, though, it's isn't it? It's so banal. And right. I think that this is one of the things that has really fascinated me because this idea, I mean, you know, there are stories about doctors saying terrible things when people are un, under anaesthetics and, and uh, it, you know, it used to happen, I think, uh, quite a lot and it, it still happens sometimes. But I think the, the real thing is that under, under anaesthetic, people become incredibly vulnerable. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. We were just you were just saying before we had anesthesia, hypnosis was one of the few ways of diverting people from the pain of, of mm. surgery. Hypnosis is another incredibly weird thing. No one really knows quite how and how and why it works. Tell me about this study you encountered from Sinai Hospital in New York, where an experiment was set up to treat women before an operation who are undergoing a breast cancer operation with a little bit of mm. hypnosis to prep them for the uh, the general anaesthetic. Please tell me about that story. I, I was really blown away when I when I read this story. Um, and 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 you know and, and to me it sort of speaks to how powerfully unconscious processes uh, kind of oper- operate. Well, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah. Um, but basically, they they got a group of women who were about to have their surgery, and they. Uh, they sat them down beforehand and I think one, one group, they had a control group who they just kind of said nice soothing things to. And the other group, they kind of did a bit of a, um, a, bit of a sort of hypnotic kind of conversation, which was really, I think, talking very slowly and in a meandery sort of way. Right. And what, what, was, more, what was suggested but, to them while they, were, while they were in this kind of hypnotic well, state? Basically, I think that they, that they, they kind of recover well, that they'd come through with sort of less nausea and less pain and um, generally that they'd just come out of the operation uh, feeling pretty good. Now, unlike the uh, Levinson study, this was a proper scientific study. This was a very proper 200 women study. over yes. a period of time. There's a control group. Yes. Uh, what did the results show uh, the, for the condition of the women who went in who'd had a little bit of hypnotic suggestion, soothing hypnotic suggestion before the operation, as opposed to the women who didn't? 
what it showed was that they were the, basically they were they were a great deal better coming out of the surgery than the women in the control group. They had uh, they used less pain drugs. They were in surgery for a shorter amount of time because partly because they needed less pain drugs. They woke up feeling happier, um, less distressed, less nausea too. Were, yeah. So, but basically, yeah, they were they were much happier bunnies. But also, when they did a, a kind of you know a, a cost calculation, they estimated that they had saved for each of those women they had saved seven hundred and seventy dollars in theatre and medical costs. So massive saving all right all round. Human saving, cost saving. So why are we not getting all these preoperative hypnotic suggestions? Why is why are we not all getting this? I, yeah, I go figure. Um, and and they asked, the people who did the study kind of asked that. They said, well, they sort of said, well, look, if there was a drug that could do this, everyone would be buying it. Here's this thing that's basically free. Uh, and, I, look, I think, I think we are very nervous about things like hypnosis. I think we're nervous about um, the mind. We're nervous about things we don't understand. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons people don't really like to think about anaesthetics and anaesthesia too much because that's all of those things together. It's uh, the sheer weirdness of it once again. Here we are once again at the weirdness of it. Yeah. You know, there's that famous scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia where, uh, you know, Pedro Tull's there doing the trick, putting his hand over the open flame. And uh, there's this scene and and he's and, and he seems to be able to do it for an, a, a long while. And and these these other officers are watching him and they go, here, let me try that. And they try it. They go, ow, ow, it hurts. And he goes, he goes here, how did you do that without, how did you can do that for so long with, with, without, without the pain? He goes, oh, no, I feel the pain. He says, the point is not minding the pain. Is that how hypnosis works? It sort of kind of diverts you from pain rather than numbs it, perhaps. Uh, look, again more mystery, but certainly it certainly it diverts the brain um, and they kind of, they've done, you know, um, EEG sort of scans. So, so certainly it does kind of divert your attention. But also there is some evidence that it actually changes um, the messages coming up and down the spine, the pain messages coming up and down the spinal cord. So uh, it can be incredibly effective. I mean, people, you know, pe- people today still have surgery uh, occasionally uh, entirely under hypnosis and it's completely painless. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's stunning, isn't I, well, it? You I, have to be pretty hypnotisable for it to happen. I but reckon. It I really wonder about it. Like you know, when you hear those stories, and the patient afterwards would say it was great. I feel fine. It recovered really well. Felt no pain. You think, oh, do you wonder if I've got the nerve? If that were me to do that. I know, I know. That's what I think. I'd change my mind halfway through. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there's a doctor in Adelaide yeah. who, who, who I think still does this. Who certainly, certainly has done it in the past. Uh, you know, hypnosis is pretty extraordinary and it's a little uncannily like anaesthesia in the things it does. It, it alters pain perception. It alters memory. Right. So you move away from all those memories of it. Messes with consciousness. Now we come to the kind of the, the odd range of horror stories that comes from a general anaesthetic. Tell me about your friend Rachel and how you heard her story. Okay, so in fact, my starting point for the whole kind of anaesthesia project was a conversation that I, I had like way back, last century, 1999, and I met this woman called called Rachel, Rachel Benmayer, and she told me the story about the um, caesarean birth of her second child and she basically had to go under a, a, a fairly rushed um, emergency general and she, you know, they put the drugs in, she passed out and then she woke and she basically woke into... 
uh, complete confusion and extraordinary pain. Uh, she had no idea what was going on except that she thought she must have been in a car accident and she thought that the car must have been reversing backwards and forwards over her. And so she kind of lay there in complete panic for a while and then she started hearing voices and she started hearing voices and kind of incredibly banal conversation. And she realised that she was in the, she was in the operation. She'd woken up, but she was utterly unable to move. And what, how did that affect her psyche, being completely paralysed by the anaesthetic? Well, I, I mean, the experience at the time was, was completely horrific and she actually said that she was pretty sure she was going to die but she then, I mean, what interested me in Rachel's, because, I mean, I, I don't like to go on about these stories too much because they are so scary and they're very, very rare. But um, in Rachel's uh, situation, she actually decided to try a technique that someone had told her about years ago, which they'd said, look, if you're in extreme pain, uh, the you can't avoid it. The best thing to do is to go into it. And so because she thought that the alternative was death, she said, and she described it, she said to me, I turned myself around and I burrowed into the pain. And I kind of said, well, and did the pain lessen? I said, hopefully. And she said, no. Um, she said it got more and more intense. But then at a certain point, she said she felt that she pushed through something. She pushed through some threshold and she found herself in a completely other space. Um, and she called it an enormous library. And she said in this library she felt powerfully that, you know, everything that had ever been known and that ever would be known by by humankind was in the library. And she also knew that she wasn't meant to be there. Um, and in that kind of space she, you know, received a sort of series of um, messages or something. And she has no idea whether they were from, from outside, from inside. But to me, the whole, I mean, to me that whole story was so fascinating because he was someone who, in fact, wasn't unconscious, but who in extremis actually went into a completely altered state of consciousness. While a baby was being taken out of her open while belly. While a baby was being taken out of her abdomen. And while she could hear the doctors saying, ah, oh, you know, here she is, it's a little girl. Was she traumatised by that experience? Yeah, she was extremely traumatised uh, for a long time. She did a lot of, a lot of um, counselling, although she didn't actually get any assistance from the hospital because this was... Oh, uh, 1991, I think, not that long ago. Mm. So this is uh, this is you found out more stories along these lines where of people who had found themselves not quite given the right amount of anaesthetic or the right balance of anaesthetic. They've had that awful traumatic thing of being aware, somewhat aware, but paralysed during surgery. Yeah, yeah, and it's only it's 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 only a problem if you're paralysed because if you're not paralysed, you can. Expression. Let people yes. know pretty quickly yeah. that you're not happy. So this is really, I suppose, the the trade-off for making anaesthetic much safer, because as you said, you know, the mm. muscle relaxants added to that cocktail, the the thing that the yes. paralysing agents. So you need less of the other stuff, which yes. is actually more dangerous to your to to, to life. And since yes. the introduction of this muscle relaxant, uh, the the fatality rate when it comes to anaesthetics has just dropped enormously as a result, because you need a yes. lot less of these drugs. Yeah, yeah. So it's made it safer it has. in terms of mortality. Yeah. yeah. But you you you're you're not quite so far below the surface of consciousness as you were before with these other drugs. Well. Y yes, yes, and also no one can know because it is actually um, almost impossible to know whether someone is unconscious or not 
and anaesthetists will acknowledge that, although they say they've got, you know, they've got monitors, they've got all sorts of ways of telling. And, I mean, there is actually a, a, an anaesthetist in Hull in the UK who uh, kind of developed this pretty amazing way of telling where he actually uh, puts a, uh, when, before he paralyses patients, he actually puts a blood pressure cuff around their arms so that their hands can still move so that the paralysing agent doesn't go into their hands. And... He That's pretty clever. <laughs> I know, pretty clever. In fact, it was his, his, someone ta- taught this technique to him. His, his mentor taught it to him. But he, uh, you know, in the 90s did, did this exper- experiment that was rather shocking where he put, again, a group of, it's always women and they're always having gynecological procedures. I'm not sure why, but he, he put them under. and But then during the surgery, he would squeeze their hand. Well, he would hold on to their hands and he would say, you know, hello, um, Jane, you know, this is this is uh, Dr. Russell. If you can hear me, I want you to squeeze my hand once. And then if they squeezed, uh, he would say, if you're in pain, I would like you to squeeze my, my hand twice. And he actually stopped that operation, that, 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 that experiment halfway through, because um, a really high proportion of those women were both awake, indicating they were both awake and in pain. Uh, now, at, this, this, is not with an, this is not an anaesthetic regime that is used anymore, um, probably partly, I mean, partly because of that experiment, no, not used by itself anyway. But he's done it more recently with more um, recent drugs and, and people keep squeezing, yeah. I've, I've seen it happen. So you've seen this happen yeah, yeah. in surgery? I saw him do it. I mean, I saw... I saw Yes, yes. I, I, I went to Hull and I, I watched it from the side and I watched this kind of, you know, hand squeeze conversation with a woman. It was right towards the end of her surgery. She was coming. She, she wasn't deeply anaesthetised. She was sort of coming to the, to the sort of very shallow end. But she was still anaesthetised enough that she, would, she was within the, the um, range of acceptable, the acceptable surgical range. And she squeezed. She was fine. She was comfortable. The only memory I have at the end of my general anaesthetic is coming to slightly and being in terrible, being in pain and being asked. I, I have a vague memory of nurses, I think, and doctors standing over me going, are you in yeah. pain? Are you in pain? Can you? And I asked me to give that number again. I, I gave a high number and boom, I was out again. And then when I woke up, you know, I was in... Um, in the land of morphine, I think, or something like that. Yeah, I was yeah. quite happy and calm once I, I came up again. So there seems to be a greater consciousness of this. But it does mm, seem mm. to beg the question, maybe we do experience or some people experience a, a high degree of pain during surgery. We just don't remember it afterwards. What do you think well, of that? Uh, well, I think it's one of the great – I mean, you know, this whole conversation I, I've found is like a piece of string and yeah. whichever bit you, you yeah. pull, something else gets tighter. And, you know, I think the things that people aren't aware of about anaesthesia are, one, uh, the paralysis, and two, the memory question, and particularly some of these new, very effective, um, kind of lovely, because you feel good afterwards, shorter-acting um, anaesthetic drugs. They're also, they're, they're extremely powerful amnestic agents. So uh, they do, they, they, they obliterate your memory. So you're kind of left in this kind of very strange position where, you know, if, if you were kind of, if you agree that what you want from an anaesthetic is to lose consciousness, uh, pain and movement and memory, the only two parts of that you can actually measure are memory and movement. And if you're paralysed, you can't measure the movement. And if you've taken a drug that takes away your memory, 
Oh, did it yeah, really happen? We're a bit like those androids in Westworld, you know, which wake up every day having their memory rebooted, and even though something terrible might have happened in a kind of a gunfight or something like that, they wake up the next day and it's all been wiped clean and, yeah, and it's yeah. fine. Uh, we should say that most of the time in surgeries this really doesn't happen. No. And some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Like what? Well, I mean, well, I mean, one woman actually woke up while her child was being delivered, and she was delighted because she was kind of there, and she she wasn't in any pain. And the thing about waking is, often people wake and they're not in pain, um, and they're not distressed. But it's also true that it's the paralysis that is that it, the paralysis is problematic because people it, uh, it's it. People get very, very frightened and I think one of the reasons why it's important to actually open up this conversation is that if people know that it's possible that they'll, they will they may wake up and just for a little bit and they may be paralysed, if they know that that's okay, they're going to feel much, much better. What often happens is people wake up and they think they're dying or they think they've, there's, a, there's a lot of research showing they think they're dead. Um, and they're and, in some strange afterlife. Yes. Yeah, or something and, and all that their spinal cord's been cut and you, you know, and so the, the, there's a very high um, rate of PTSD after these sorts of experiences, even without pain. So, um, in, information really can be power. You've discovered that this is a, an ongoing conversation amongst uh, peak bodies, amongst anaesthetists. Anaesthetists are, talk, are talking about these things all the time in their in their conferences, and, and quite so. You, you found that actually just talking to the patient before the operation, hypnosis or no hypnosis, is can be enormously helpful. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I found that for myself, um, but also, I mean, the, yes, there's there's plenty of research, or there, no, not plenty. And and in fact, when we say there's a lot of anaesthetists researching this, there are some anaesthetists researching this a lot. Um, I think a lot aren't particularly aware of uh, all of the conversation. There's been a big English study, and and uh, you know, the the combination of information and reassurance. Uh, and also, if something does happen and all go wrong, listening respectfully makes a massive, massive difference. You went out to Ann Arbor in Michigan in the United States to meet a really interesting guy called George Mashur, who's uh, an anaesthetist or an intern. An, an intern. I'm not quite sure what his, he, his medical status is well, now. Well, he's a neuroscientist and now a very, very senior anaesthetist. Okay. But he was a, he was a kind of intern anaesthetist at that point. He was a very, very. He was in his thirties extraordinarily bright. It was like his third degree or something. So he's got this idea, this kind of, this model, if you like, of, of what unconsciousness is. Is, is, it, is it emptiness? Is it, is it a quietness? Is it an absence or something? He's a, a really interesting and a different idea. Tell me about what he, what he told you. He's really fascinating, yeah. He, he developed this, this theory that um, being under anaesthesia wasn't necessarily just, I mean, traditionally the idea has been that the anaesthetics sort of turned down the brain like a sort of dimmer switch. And he developed this theory, and he was building it on, on um, research other people had done, but he, he came up with this idea that um, maybe anaesthesia was more like it dismantled the brain. And he there, there's a kind of the, there's a theory uh, that had been around called the theory of cognitive binding, which is this idea that actually consciousness, we become consciousness when all of the kind of bits of our brain are communicating and there's a level of communication and you're conscious. And he said, George said, well, maybe actually what anaesthesia is is a process of unbinding. And he, he, his, the sort of metaphor he used, which was really helpful for me, was he said, look, it's like imagine an, an orchestra. And so 
um, you know, the thing about an anaesthetic is a general anaesthetic is the messages still get through from, you know, your finger or your toe or wherever's being cut. It's not like a, a local which um, deadens the response in the finger. Uh, that message goes all the way up into the brain. Uh, and but uh, George's theory is that essentially the anaesthetics stop the brain. So all that information is there. It's like in jigsaw bits or it's like the in, the individual players in the orchestra. They're all sitting there. They're kind of tuning up. They've got their instruments. The instruments all work fine, but they can't play together. And if they start to play, it's just noise. It's not music. Right. So consciousness is music. Right. Consciousness is music. It's yeah. all the parts of the orchestra playing together yes. with one another. With one another. With one another. But unconsciousness, according to his theory, is a kind of like a tuning up process or just people banging around in the corner with their instruments. It's not coherent then. That's it's the not coherent. Right. It's not coherent. And, in fact, he's taken that analogy further now and now he's not talking about an orchestra anymore. Now he's talking about jazz. The last conversation I had was all about jazz. So that's a whole other thing. So finding out all this stuff and what you know anyway ahead of this operation you went in for for, for your back, what, what do you now want to happen if, if, if when an it, when if you go in again, say for another operation, yeah. and you have the anaesthetist comes around to you to, to to meet you or talk to you as they do, which is a very nice conversation. What what would you say to the anaesthetist in terms of what you'd like to happen before the before you go under? I I would say I mean I think there are different sorts of people, but for me I'm the sort of person who likes information, and I, I would like to know uh, what monitors. The, the anaesthetist might be using, I'd say uh, I'm nervous because if you tell someone you're nervous, they're going to pay particular attention to you. If, you're, if you've had any kind of previous experience of being aware or anyone in your family has, uh, it's really worth mentioning. Again, I think it's about communication. Um, you know, I would like my anaesthetist to ring me before I'm in the hospital terrified and actually say, would you like me to talk you through some of this? And I would say yes. Some people might say, mm, maybe not so much. But I do think that to have that conversation about the um, remote conversa- uh, possibility, particularly of waking up paralysed, is really important. Um, and also, I would like them to. I would like to know that during the surgery, as some anaesthetists do, I would like to know that they would be talking to me, not to each other, or to me as well as to each other. I would like to know that they would be using my name. And I, I met this beautiful anaesthetist last night in, in Brisbane and she she said that she, she, she said, oh, you know, towards the end of an operation when the patient's still unconscious, she said often staff start talking about the patient, they start talking about the prognosis. And she said, and she said they think I'm a bit nuts, but she said I go and I put my fingers in their, their ears, I block their ears so they can't hear. Uh, the so, patient's ears, so right. In the patient's ears. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, myself, I think you, they could have a sign on the wall of the operating theatre saying, um, you know, the patient can hear. The patient might be able not, to hear They you. may not be listening, but they, they may well be able to hear. How did you go with your operation anyway? How did, well, the, the operation is one thing, but I suppose how did you go with the anaesthetic and, and the operation? Well, I had a completely delightful anaesthetist who, uh, but, but, <laughs> who was probably terrified of me because I told him how much <laughs> I knew about anaesthesia. And if that, um, what then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, you know, I, I, I came out and I was just so happy. I was so delighted to be alive. And then I had to get on with, you know, recovery, which was a whole nother, whole nother question. But um, Did you ask questions about what was happening to you and what you were saying as you were going under and coming up again? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I do. And my mum, my, my mum was with me when I was waking up and I'd, I'd briefed her before the operation. I said, mum, I want you to 
ask me, the minute I come out, I want you to ask me if I remember anything because people often do remember things and then they forget very quickly. Right. And mum was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And um, <laughs> so I'm, I can remember, remember being on the, oh, no, I don't remember being on the trolley. I remember asking her afterwards and I said, mum, did I say anything? And she said, well, yes. And I said, but what? And she said, well, most of it I couldn't make out and what all I could really make out was you, you kept saying bad playground. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you have any idea why you would have said that at all? Well, I sort of do because in a sense it made sense because I think, you know, the drugs can make you feel pretty amazing but also uh, playgrounds are full of metal and... Um, mm. well, actually, oh, right, the operating theatre is the bad playground. Yeah, I see now, sorry. Th- I think yeah. that that was the operating theatre. It's off the mark today. I see now, right, so the yeah. operating theatre is the bad playground. I reckon. Right, full of well, sharp edges. Yeah, and, um... I, I'm thinking. I know. <laughs> Who knows? That was what I said. I never remembered saying it. <laughs> this is one of those things where the humanities intersects with the science really, science really well, I think, writing a book like this, is that you sort of hone in on something, you come closer to a mystery there. Overall, what do you know now that you didn't know before? Kate, can can you think of how you're different about this stuff now? Well, I know how much we don't know. I know that there is that there is mystery in at the heart of this, and I think it's fine to have mystery. I think one of the things that happens is we tend, you know, the sort of medical model tends to be to try and make things uh, clean and neat and with sort of quite sharp edges. And there aren't sharp edges in this conversation, you know. And and I think it's it's. And as far as I'm concerned, going into an operation is it's a process that you go into and should be able to go into with your doctor and your anaesthetist and it's something you're doing together. It's not just something that is done to you and that as a patient you remain a person. How have anaesthetists responded to this, to your study? I've, I've had some really good feedback so far and, you know, this anaesthetist who was in the audience last night and she put up her hand at the end and said, I'm an anaesthetist and I thought, oh, no. And she said, no, that was great. I completely agree, you know. But she also said, you've got to know, we really, really are very aware of this stuff these days. We work very hard to communicate. We work very hard to look after our patients. And, you know, basically everyone in the audience said, oh, we want you as our anaesthetist. (laughs) (laughs) Ask for you by name. What a fascinating story. And it's been so great to speak with you, Kate. I really appreciate you coming on the program to talk about all this fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. I've enjoyed it. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.